0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the third chapter and the 18th verse, the 18th verse in the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I come back once more to a consideration of this great and most important verse, and my reason for doing so is its very greatness and its central importance. We've been working our way through this amazing conversation that took place between the Lord Jesus Christ and this man Nicodemus, this teacher of the Jews this Pharisee, this remarkable man, indeed this great man. You remember that the whole conversation took place because Nicodemus went seeking an interview with our Lord as the result of his observation of our Lord's miracles in Jerusalem. And you remember how he made his statement and was obviously on the verge of putting his question when our Lord interrupted him and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. At once he shows him that his whole approach is wrong, and that unless he is born again, born from above, born of the Spirit, he stands no chance whatsoever of even beginning to understand these things. And then, having done that, our Lord, you remember, has gone on to make certain positive statements about himself and the meaning and the purpose of his coming. And he has, as it were, summed it up in this great well-known 16th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The verse we all think we know, The verse we all think we understand, but I think I've been able to show you that there is no verse that is more misunderstood than that. And we've been looking at the misunderstandings on the two sides. There are those who fail to see the love of God at all, so that our Lord found it necessary to add in verse 17, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There are some people who've never seen the love of God. But on the other hand, as this 18th verse reminds us, and as I was showing last Sunday night, there are those who see nothing but the love of God and think that John 3.16 is just a general proclamation to the effect that because God is love, everybody will be saved and we have nothing at all to worry about. Well, now, here this 18th verse you see, makes that very plain and clear that that is entirely wrong. There are two divisions, as we've seen. There are two he's. He that believeth, he that believeth not. And their fates correspond, is not condemned, is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Very well, here we are looking at these great and all important and momentous things. Now we've been working through these verses in detail and we've gone through them quietly. And as we've done so, we cannot have failed to have noticed that there is one word which keeps on recurring. It seems to be the controlling word in the entire passage, especially beginning from verse 14. Notice how our Lord puts it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now here I say we see at once that the important word is this word uh, to believe he that believeth or believeth not. Indeed, it is, of course, the truth to say that this is the great word that is emphasized everywhere, right through the New Testament. It is the characteristic mark of the New Testament gospel that it puts in the forefront this word to believe. It is particularly the great word of the Protestant faith The grand discovery that was made by Martin Luther was that a man is justified by faith, which means his belief. And this, therefore, is something, I say, that really must engage our most careful attention. Therefore, I want to talk to you this evening uh, simply and directly about this one word and uh, I want to put it to you in the number of a propos- in number of propositions. The first thing, obviously, is this. The importance, the all-importance of belief. Now, it is quite clear that this, according to our Lord's teaching here, as indeed according to his teaching everywhere, as I've just been saying, this is the thing that determines our eternal destiny. And therefore, it needs no demonstration to say that there is no more important word for us to look at together. Now, let me put it to you in this particular way. Nothing strikes one as one reads through the Bible more obviously and evidently than this the seriousness of life in this world. Now, there are many forms of teaching in the scriptures, and there are many particular aspects of truth that are put before us, but I say there is one thing that you can't fail to grasp as you go through from Genesis to Revelation, and that is that the people of God as they appear in this book have always been a people who have regarded that life is a very serious thing. And why is life a serious thing? Well, it is a serious thing for this reason. That this life of ours is nothing but a kind of preparatory school. It's a place of probation. It is a place of preparation. Now, to say that is not a derogate from the importance of life in this world. The Bible never does that. The Bible, with its serious view of life, says that, looked at from any angle or from any standpoint, life is a very big and a very great and a very momentous thing. But over and above every other subsidiary reason that we may have for regarding life seriously, this is the one that should be uppermost. That life, as I say, is a place of probation. Life is not something in and of itself this world is not something in and of itself. We are simply here for a while, and we pass through it. These are the characteristic biblical terms, aren't they? They call us it calls us strangers and pilgrims. It calls us travellers and journeymen and sojourners. That's its picture, and as it describes its great men of faith. That's what he tells us, that these were all men uh, who uh, were looking for a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. The seriousness of life, and particularly because I say it is the realm in which our eternal future is determined, nothing less than that, its teaching is that man has been given a soul, and that when his body dies, his soul goes on, and that it goes on to all eternity. So that this, the moment you see it, gives to life a tremendous sense of importance and of seriousness, that during the short time, comparatively speaking, we are in this world, we are determining an everlasting and eternal destiny. Very well then, if that is true, my second proposition must of necessity and inevitably be true. The most important thing we do in this life and in this world is the thing we are doing at this very moment. It is simply to listen to this gospel. Now that's what our Lord is, in other words, saying to Nicodemus at this point. Because he says this, you see, that what determines that eternal destiny, whichever it is, is our relationship to him. He that believeth on him is not condemned. That's his eternal destiny. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here we are, I say, determining our eternal destiny. It's either to be one of bliss or one of misery. And what determines it is our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I say that there is nothing in the whole of life which is more important than what you and I are engaged in at this very second to listen to the gospel to listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and our response and our reaction to that. Now this is something, I say, that is more important than everything else. More important than politics, more important than the strikes, more important than the lockouts, more important than everything else. May I put it like this in a very personal way? I've read during this last week two criticisms of uh, evangelical preaching, the kind of preaching that anyone who comes and listens here uh, listens to. And what is the criticism? Well, the criticism of it is this. In one instance it was a criticism of me, it was in the other instance a criticism of all evangelicals, and it's what's always being said about this method of preaching the gospel. Ah, they say, he just goes on saying the same thing, whether prime ministers fall or whether they don't. You see what is meant by that, that I should be standing in this pulpit when there happens to be the fall of a prime minister or the change of a government, that I should address you on that subject. And I suppose therefore this evening I ought to be preaching on the strikes. Why don't I do so? Well, I could give you many reasons as to why I don't do so. One sufficient reason for me is this. I really don't know enough about the facts to express an intelligent opinion. I read the newspapers like everybody else, but still, I don't really know. There is probably a great deal to be said on all sides. I am not in a position to offer advice. I really cannot help. And I try to make it a rule, not to speak about a subject if I don't know much about it. I should have thought that's enough. But I have an infinitely bigger and more important reason than that. While industrial and economic and social conditions, of course, are important, and every one of us should try to be as intelligent as possible with respect to them, The business of the church of God is to do something that is surpassing altogether in importance, and that is this, to deal with the question of men's eternal destiny. Of course the trade of this country is important, but my dear friend, that's only going to apply to you for a while. I'm talking to you this evening about something that will apply to you for all eternity without end. And there are so few vices that do that. The Lord Jesus Christ was telling Nicodemus that he was addressing him about the most vital and the most urgent matter that can ever engage a man's attention. But come, what I'm anxious to put to you this evening is this. Isn't it appalling to realize that men and women who take these other things so seriously take this so casually how heated and excited people get about other things. How casual they are and cursory in their consideration of this. Come, let me ask you a simple question, therefore. Have you believed this gospel, this message? Have you realized the importance of knowing whether you believe it or not? This, I say, is something which is of eternal importance. The Lord himself said on one occasion, Take heed, are we here? Have we realized, my dear friends, that we shall have to answer in eternity for the way we've listened to this? It is this that determines and decides our everlasting destiny. Nothing is more important, therefore, than belief. Very well, having established that, let me go on to the next question, which is obviously this one. What then is the exact nature and content of belief? If our Lord goes on repeating this word like this, well, what's it mean? You say to us as someone that it's this believing or not believing that determines uh, my final destiny. Well, what exactly do you mean by believing? Oh, what an important question this is. Let me put it therefore first of all negatively. To believe is not simply to say that you believe certain things. It includes that, but it isn't only that. There is a difference between belief as defined in the scripture and what you may call a believism. There's nothing in a sense which is quite so easy as for people to say, all right, I'll believe that. Now, that, I say, is not belief. Secondly, to believe according to the New Testament is not merely to give an intellectual assent to a number of assertions and propositions. Of course, it again includes that, but it doesn't stop at that. It is possible for us all to give a theoretical assent to the whole of the scriptures. I've known men who've done that. And it's had no effect upon their lives at all. They happened to have been brought up in that atmosphere. They'd got intellect and they were interested in these things and they knew their Bibles and could argue about them. But it had no influence at all upon their behavior and their conduct. It really had no influence upon their spirit. It's an appalling thing, but it's absolutely true that one can have a merely intellectual, purely objective and external interest even in the word of God and in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it isn't merely that. I want to go even a step further and to say this. Belief as it is defined here by our Lord himself does not simply mean believing certain things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Once more, it's obvious, isn't it, that we must believe certain things about him. But I'm trying to show you that this term belief is a very comprehensive one. It includes a number of matters. There are people who would say without any hesitation that they think that Jesus of Nazareth is the best man that this world has ever seen. Now that's quite true. They say that he's the greatest teacher that the world has ever seen. Again, it's perfectly true. They say his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is the highest ethic that mankind has ever confronted. Again, it's absolutely right. But you know, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is not just that. There are people who take out things out of him and they say, yes, I believe that, and they think they believe on him. Now, belief must be defined as he defined it himself. And he has defined it here for us perfectly plainly and clearly. Now, let me remind you of it again. Let me sum it up for you. What is to believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God? Well, it means that we believe the specific teaching that he here gave Nicodemus. It involves a total attitude. What do you mean by your total attitude, says someone? Well, I mean things like this. To believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, means in the first place, that we accept his teaching about mankind as it is in and of itself in sin. You notice his word, don't you? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. He says it in the 15th verse, he says it in the 16th verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Now then, Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ includes that. You can't talk about believing in him without this. Because if you don't talk of this belief in terms of that, your belief is inadequate and incomplete. That, therefore, must be the starting point. It's not enough for a man to say to me, Ah, yes, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, and I believe that he worked miracles and that he gave a certain teaching. I believe all that. But the vital question is this, do you believe that you yourself are perishing? What is it that man needs? If you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, why did he come into the world? Why was it ever necessary that he should come? You see, it's a part of believing in him. And he's made it perfectly plain himself. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, be lifted up. Mankind, every one of us by nature, is in a lost and in a perishing condition. Have we believed that? It isn't enough to admire his person and to say that you think his life was beautiful and his teaching was beautiful. That's not difficult. What's difficult is to admit the truth about ourselves. Ah, Our mankind has always objected to this. It's still objecting to it. I've often reminded you of a man who wrote a criticism of Charles Wesley's great hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. He took up those phrases Vile and full of sin I am, thou art full of truth and grace. What an appalling thing to say, he said. Did you ever hear of a man, he says, applying for a post, putting in his application, I am vile and full of sin? Of course you didn't, and he should never say it. But it's an essential part of this belief. You can't believe in him in abstract. You take him as he is. Here he is addressing Nicodemus. And this is what he's pressing upon Nicodemus, who thought that he could save himself by being a good Pharisee and by living a good life, and so on and so forth. No, no, says Christ, you can't. I've come, and I've got to be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent. You are lost, you're perishing, and you cannot save yourself. I've come to save you. That is an essential part of belief. You don't just believe in the Son of God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a friend or a help or an aid. You believe in him as a savior. You believe in him as one who came and whose soul was made an offering for sin. You believe this must of his. You believe when he says that if he doesn't do it, you're done and you're doomed. Belief in him includes that. So I say that it means also that you include in its content that you know why he came into the world and what he has done by coming into this world. And that furthermore, you realize that you've got to trust yourself and your eternal future utterly and absolutely to him and what he has done for us. Very well then, I can summarize it by putting it in this form. If I say that I believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God, what I'm really saying is this, that I realize that I'm just passing through this world, and that I'm always under the eye of God. And that I know when I come to die that I and all others will have to stand before God in the judgment. And that I see clearly that I'm condemned, that I'm lost, that nothing that I can do can save me, and that I'm going inevitably in the direction of that judgment. But that I now see that God has so loved me that he sent his only begotten Son to bear my sins and their punishment, that he gave his life for me, that he died that I might be forgiven, he died to make me good. I believe that he came right out of heaven here on earth in order to do that for me and to save me from that appalling consequence. And therefore, having seen that, I forsake the life I lived, the world I belonged to, and I go after him. Believing includes all that. It means, you see, your total view of life. It means that we've come to see that the biggest and the most important thing in this life and in this world is that we realize this business of this eternal destiny and that we've become urgent and desperate and that we've seen the truth and we've clung to him and are trusting to him and now obviously we're going to avoid everything that has produced this calamity in the history of the race. That is what believing on the Lord Jesus Christ means. It means that these things have become central, these things have become controlling in my life and all my activity and all my experience. It means that in every realm of my life I am governed by this overruling principle that I am under God and I'm going on to face God. I am a child of God walking through this world. Take the way the Apostle put it in that first epistle of his, in that fifth chapter that I read to you at the beginning. We are of God little children, and the whole world lieth in the evil one. Have you believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God? Is your belief in him the biggest thing in your life and the controlling factor everywhere? What a momentous thing it is to believe. What a big thing it is to believe. You know you've got to work it all out. And then, having worked it all out, you commit yourself to him. Belief, I say, is not just saying that you believe. It's not just saying that you accept certain things. It's the coming home to you of this truth that he preached to Nicodemus. It's the significance of the word perishing. It's the realization that we're all involved in this and that at any moment the end may come and we are face to face with him. It's the realization of all this and the flying to Christ and the committal of ourselves to him and our whole life in turn is modeled according to that conception belief. That's what it means. You can see it in a flash, of course, thank God. But I'm emphasizing the content, which is that it involves all this. Very well then, that brings me to my last point this evening, which is this one. We've seen the importance of belief. We have seen the content or the character of belief. And I put as my third and my last proposition and principle the opposite of all that, the enormity of unbelief. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There is no sin that is greater than the sin of unbelief. There is no sin to which the word enormity is so applicable as this particular sin. You see how sadly we go astray, we classify sins, don't we? And there are some people in their ignorance who think they've never sinned at all because they haven't done certain things. I am asserting that there is no greater sin than the sin of unbelief. That's what our Lord says to Nicodemus. It is because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God that he is condemned already, as I showed you last Sunday evening. Very well, why is this the greatest sin? We are discussing a very solemn matter together this evening. Well, this is the greatest sin essentially for this reason. That unbelief just means this, that we put up and assert our opinions over and against God's truth and God's revelation. Now, that is the principle. You see, every one of us in this chapel at this moment is in one of two positions. We either accept the teaching of this book about God and about man, about our souls, about our life in this world, about death, about what happens after death, about what happens in eternity. We either accept this revelation or else, and it's the only alternative, We set up our own ideas and our own opinions and our own thoughts. Of course, we may accept the thoughts and opinions and ideas of somebody else. Yes, but it's we who decide to do that. We say, now this is the thing that I believe. This man has said it so much better than I can say it myself. One of these scientists or these philosophers, that's what he says, that's what I believe. Well, you're putting up his opinion, which is a human opinion, with your own opinion against God's revelation. Now, that is a tremendous thing to do. And if I do nothing else this evening, I just ask you solemnly to ponder the thing that is being done by so many today, the people who dismiss it all and who laugh at it and who ridicule it. What they don't realize is that they're dismissing and brushing aside the revelation of God and are putting up their own opinions and their own thoughts. There's only one word to describe that. It is the word enormity. But come, let me work out that principle with you just a little bit in detail. Why is unbelief such a terrible thing? Well, here's the first reason. It obviously flouts God's law and God's judgment on us and on our sin. You see, I'm not standing here to give you my own opinions I'm simply expounding to you and telling you what is to be found in this book. So your argument is not with me, it's an argument with this book. And there in that book I find God's law. And I find that God's law makes certain pronouncements on me and on my conduct and on my behavior and on the whole of my life. So that if I do not believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God, what I'm virtually doing is this. I am rejecting what God says about me in his law. The law of God calls upon us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. The law of God calls me to live to the glory of God entirely and utterly and absolutely. And it tells me quite plainly that if I don't, I'm condemned and I'm under the wrath of God. Now I say not to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is to deny that and to dismiss it and to flout it and to reject it. How difficult it is to realize that we do that when we reject this gospel. We are proclaiming, if we reject this gospel, that we know the truth about men. We stand up and we say, no, we don't believe that at all. That's the sort of thing that people used to believe. We believe with our modern knowledge that if a man lives a good life and so on, that all is well. That just means, I say, that you're taking the law of God and throwing it on the ground and spitting upon it or throwing it into the fire and burning it. God's law. You know what happens to a man that does that with the law of the land? Well, multiply that by infinity, and you'll see the fate of a man who does that with God's law. But that's what unbelief means. We just stand up and we say, we are not at all concerned about this. You talk about sin, and you talk about judgment, and you talk about heaven and about hell. I don't believe in any of it. Very well, then, all I'm asking you to see is that you are deliberately flouting God's law and what he has revealed concerning himself and his view of men and the relationship between men and himself. Can there be anything more terrible than that? But listen to this, this is worse. Not to believe this gospel means that we are guilty of rejecting the testimony of God's Only begotten Son. That's what he's saying here to Nicodemus, isn't it? He is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Oh, that the Holy Spirit might enable me to make this point plain and clear. You see, what mankind doesn't realize tonight is this, that something unique has happened in the history of the whole human race. Nearly 2,000 years ago it happened. There was a birth in Bethlehem and a babe was born such as the world had never seen. It wasn't just another babe coming into the world. It was the eternal Son of God entering into time, taking flesh unto him. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I'm not confronting you with the words of a man or the words of men, the greatest and the noblest. I'm saying that here the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, has been amongst us and has borne his witness and his testimony. That's what he was saying to Nicodemus. Now let me remind you of how he said it. You remember how he put it in the 11th verse? Verily, verily, he said, I say unto thee, we speak, that we do know and testify That we have seen, and you receive not our witness. Man, he said, don't you realize who I am? I'm not just talking theory. I'm not just spinning out a web of my own philosophy. I'm speaking that which I do know, and I'm testifying that which I have seen. Listen to him putting it in the 13th verse. No man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Nicodemus, you're a master of Israel. You're a great religious teacher. Yes, but tell me, have you been into heaven? Have you looked over God's shoulder? Have you looked into the book of life and the book of the law? You're speaking second hand. I've seen. I'm a witness. I'm a direct witness. I've come down from heaven. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the only begotten Son of God. And you and I, as we listen to this gospel, are listening to his witness and to his testimony. But listen, he goes on at the end of this chapter to put it still more clearly. It comes really in the words of John the Baptist. Listen to verse 31. He that cometh from above, says John the Baptist about him, is above all. You see, some of John's disciples were a little bit jealous on John's behalf. He said, They said to him, are you going to let this other teacher take the crowd from you? Listen, says John, he must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth he is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all, and what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. Could it possibly be put more clearly to us than that? In rejecting this gospel, we are rejecting the testimony of the only begotten Son of God. That's our claim. This is not a religion. The religions have been produced by men. This is the Son of God. This is revelation. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son, The one who is the brightness of his image, of his glory, and the express image, the effulgence of his glory. The one who has made all things and who sustains all things. That's the one who's speaking. Do you see the enormity of rejecting this? Rejecting this, we don't reject the words and theories of men. We're hurling back into his face the testimony of the eternal Son of God. But come, there's something even worse. If we reject him and his message... If we stand up and say, I'm not interested, I'm not concerned, that's what a man says who isn't a Christian. He says, I'm not interested in what happened 2,000 years ago. I don't believe in your incarnation. Very well. You see, he's denying the most momentous event in history. But he's doing something even worse. He is not only rejecting the testimony of the Son of God... He is rejecting the testimony of God himself to his own son. Had you realized this? Let me quote these verses to you again. Here it is, you see, in this 33rd verse. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. A man who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, said John the Baptist, he's putting his seal to God's testimony to his own son. But listen to John putting it negatively in the first epistle, in that fifth chapter and the tenth verse. You remember how he put it there. Listen to this. He that believeth on the Son of God hath a witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. So if you reject this message, if you reject the Son of God, what you're doing is to say that God is a liar. Is there anything more terrible than that? That's why I use this term enormity, the enormity of sin. It makes God a liar, for God hath borne witness and testimony to his Son. How did he do it? Well, he did it in many ways. Do you remember what happened when our Lord was baptized by John the Baptist at the Jordan? There he was, apparently just a man. And he had submitted a baptism by John. But as he was just coming up out of the water, you remember what happened? The Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove. And a voice spake from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God is speaking from heaven, bearing witness and testimony to his Son. Do you believe God? Have you accepted his testimony? He says, I've sent my Son for you. Have you believed him or do you say he's a liar? It's one or the other. Oh, but he not only bore witness to him there, in the descent of the Holy Ghost and in the voice, he spoke again on the Mount of Transfiguration. But you know, he went on bearing his witness and his testimony to him, in enabling him to work the miracles that he worked. Our Lord, in almost desperation, one afternoon, uh, turned to these incredulous Jews and he said, If he believe not me, believe the very works, believe for the works' sake. If you don't believe my words, he said, look what I'm doing. And you know, he even had to say something very similar. You remember even to poor John the Baptist, who had been languishing in prison for months, and as the result of his physical infirmity and various other reasons, doubts had come into his mind, and he sent his two disciples to ask, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? You remember the reply? Go, said our Lord, to these two emissaries. Go and tell John again. The things which ye do see and hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf are made to hear. The very dead are raised. And the gospel is preached to the poor. There's the evidence. The miracles. The signs. The marks. That was God's way of giving his witness and bearing his testimony to his only begotten Son. And you and I finally have something on top of all this, the resurrection. The first truly to arise from amongst the dead, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness, By the resurrection from the dead. My dear friend, let me hold it before you. God has borne his witness to his Son and to his words. Have you believed? Have you accepted? Don't you see that it means this if you don't? You're saying God's a liar? It isn't true. And there's no need to argue about it. Anybody who says that God is a liar is condemned already. But ah, I leave you with this word. The enormity of sin is ultimately seen in this, that it means that a man who doesn't believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God is spurning and rejecting God's love. And his wondrous way of salvation, God so love the world. If you don't believe on him and on his message, it means that you turn your back upon his love. You say you're not interested. That it doesn't matter. That though the Son left the courts of heaven and came here on earth and humbled and abased himself, it's nothing to you. That though he went to the shame and the suffering of the cross, you couldn't care less. I've got to put it very plainly. Either the death of the Son of God on the cross is the biggest thing in the world to you, or else you don't believe it, and not to believe that, to ignore God's outpouring of his eternal heart of love. There's nothing to be said about it except that a man who is guilty of death is condemning himself. He's shutting himself outside the love of God, the only thing that can save him and rescue him and redeem him. Oh, my dear friend, have I made it plain to you, the enormity of unbelief. There's nothing finally more terrible. You are spurning everything that is most glorious and wondrous, even in God himself. There's nothing left but the bearing of the awful consequences. I don't want to leave you on that note. I ask you rather to look at him again. Consider him. Look at this person who spoke to Nicodemus. Listen to his words. Listen to his authority. Listen to all, he said. Look at him on the cross. And see there the only begotten Son of God dying for you and for your sins to reconcile you to God and to open the gateway of heaven. Ah, but before you get to heaven, he'll change everything for you in this world. You will know that blessed new birth You will become a new man. You will see all things new. And you will begin to enjoy the smile and the love of God. God forbid that anyone should go out of this service in unbelief. Amen. Have you believed on him? If you haven't until this night, tell him so now and thank him and ask him to enable you to love him as you ought. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage and evermore. Amen.